morning, everyone. Um, so here marks uh, lesson number two, I guess, on my sermon series on sermons based on hymns. Um, and I guess maybe I got this inspiration a few weeks back um, when we were singing this song. Um, and I think the message really resonated with me at the time. Also, it's quite interesting musically, which we will have a quick look at down the line. Um, but um, here we are. Maybe we'll um, continue this series. I don't know. I'm still a little bit unsure whether we're going to continue this or not. But um, for now, here we are. Um, we've, as you can see, we've got a brand new projector. Um, and uh, maybe it's not as clear. But my wife said I unintentionally matched the, um, the blue and the grey pants with the background today as well, um, if, you're, if you maybe you're paying attention to that. All right, so um, just like um, a few weeks back when we looked at the hymn Rock of Ages, um, we are going to look at a um, set outline. Um, with, we're going to be looking at the background of the hymn, um, looking at the music um, analysis, doing a lyrics analysis and applying what we can um, learn from this lesson as well. Oh, and the other feedback that I got from my lesson last time was we never actually sang the hymn last time, so that's um, on the cards for today as well. Um, but looking at the background of this hymn, I don't know, whenever I choose a hymn to study, I never go in thinking that I'm going to, um, I, I never look at the backgrounds of any particular ones um, before going into them. Um, and so it's always a little bit of a surprise to me when I do a little bit of research as well. And keep in mind, all the information that I gather is from um, blogs or maybe questionable sources on the internet. So you're going to take all this information with a pinch of salt. But um, I guess it does give us a little bit of um, interesting context as to how these uh, hymns came about. And our hymn for this morning, His Grace Reaches Me, um, was written and composed by a man um, by the name of uh, Jewel Munro Gleason. Um, and in the uh, hymn books, you will see his name as Whitey. I guess maybe that was his nickname. He was born in 1932 in Kingman, Kansas. Um, and as opposed to Rock of Ages, which we studied last time, which was a um, poem that was written with music then applied to later, um, he wrote the words and the music himself. And he was apparently a very prestigious man um, in the musical world at this point in time. He was part of multiple musical groups, owned his own musical company, and eventually entered into the Gospel Music Hall of Fame, having written hundreds of um, music um, from a gospel setting. Um, I guess, keep in mind, this is uh, music that we're talking about with you know, instrumental music, denominational music. But he went on to publish the hymn, His Grace Reaches Me, in 1964. And the original um, publication, you can actually find it on YouTube, is um, a solo voice with a piano accompaniment. And that is how the hymn was originally written. Um, and then after a successful musical career, he eventually died in 2007 after battling lymphoma for several years. So he lived um, a life where he had written lots of things. The author talks about him being an uh, educator um, and using music as a means of educating others as well. But if we look specifically at the hymn, um, this is what I mentioned a little bit earlier, that it was originally a vocal and piano track for a solo singer. And the first arrangement that we have, um, which is the arrangement that we have in our hymn books um, uh, today, um, is where you have a solo melody and the harmony in the verses that sing the word R for the first part. And this was recorded in 1977. So we're talking a few years um, down the line from when he originally wrote this. And I guess I, that kind of mirrors how you would perceive the, the solo voice with the piano accompaniment and the original arrangements um, were not done by him, were done by someone else, but you can see that that was trying to mimic how the solo um, voice was then be added into the harmony with the accompaniment. 
And then a later arrangement was published in 1983, a few years later, which was a congregational arrangement. So other hymn books um, have this arrangement where you have four separate uh, harmony lines all singing the lyrics as well. Um, and so that, again, gives us a little bit of a background for how this hymn came about. But let's actually look at the music. Now, when we looked at Rock of Ages, we kind of only spent maybe one or two minutes on this because it was a very brief... Um, hymn, there wasn't much to it. It was a very simple um, melody that had been added on to the words, um, you know, decades later. So, you know, I, my, my guess is that the composer who wrote the music wanted to simply just highlight the words and had a very simple, very simple melodic line, very simple harmonies, nothing too crazy. But we can see that this is a little bit different when we get to um, His Grace Reaches Me, um, which is a little bit small maybe on the screen, but um, what you're going to see is that because it was written, the words and the music by the same person, that there is a lot more artistic flair to the music, um, which really adds um, emphasis to the words that he, that he has written here. And the first thing to look at is, I'm going to get my pointer out, we are going to see that this um, form of music is called a binary structure. So when we looked at Rock of Ages, that was a ternary structure, which means you have an A section, a B section, and a repetition of A, A, B, A. But we can see in this verse anyway, in these four lines, that this uses a binary structure, binary being two. So we have an A section here in the first two lines and a B section here. But more specifically, you can see that if you're looking, again, you don't need to be too musically inclined. You simply just look at this first line here and this line here. It starts off very similarly and the music itself is also very similar with the chords that are used. They're the same chords in this third line and the first line. So we can see that we've got an A section, a B section here goes back to the A and then ends off with a last section, which is a C. So we've got an A, B, A, C structure. But we can see that the rhythm is largely the same across all um, four parts. And what I mean by that is you can see that besides the harmonies being this R word that we talked a little bit, bit um, earlier, you can see that the way that the writer has used it is that we have everyone singing essentially at the same time. You've got these little bits here where the melody line, the soprano line is singing by itself, but by and large, everyone is singing the same thing at the same time. And that all is adds to the end here when you can see each part is singing the same thing at the same time here. Now, when we look at the chords, um, of the music. This is really used to build suspense. And again, if you're not very musically inclined, that's absolutely fine. But here is, when we talk about uh, congregational music, we use these shape notes here. And this is an easy way for us to be able to look at the music and ident easily identify the notes that we need to sing without actually having to be able to read music. As long as you can identify the shape, then you can identify the words I'm sorry, identify the notes that need to be sung here. But what you can see here, oh, and the other thing as well is that um, I'm going to refer to these chords as numbers one to seven, and that correlates to these here. So you can see you've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and then the do goes back to the one chord here. So we talk about chords having seven numbers in a particular key. And what you'll see is that the chords that are used in this piece of music are used to build suspense. So essentially, the further that you go up the scale, the more... Um, that is being used to build up the chords. And we can see here that we start off with a one, three, four, back to one. Then we add a five, 
6, 1, and 5. So it starts off at a 1 and builds up with a break and ultimately ends at 5. And that's a very common way that music writers will write music. Um, so we have a middle section here. But a 5 chord, the dominant, is always used as a focal point. So we can see here that when the, when the writer of the music is writing words such as, look at the first line, deeper than the ocean and wider than the sea, is the grace of the saviour for sinners like me. And the word me is used on the dominant chord, which is the focal point. And then when you look at the second two lines, because again, we're talking about a binary structure, an A and a B section, we can see a very similar um, way. So we've got a one, three, four, and three. So again, similar to this first line. Then we go four, one, five, and one. And the way that music writers always, you'll see that you'll, you'll always notice Especially if you look at the bass line here, you'll have your five chord, which is this so, and then it'll always resolve to a one. Five to one, the dominant back to the starting, is a way of, again, ending with a focal point as well. And so we can see that, again, we, when you look at the first line, it says, sent from the Father, and it thrills my soul just to feel and to know that his blood makes me whole. So we're linking the fact that we're talking about sinners like me and blood makes me whole, that we're adding focal points here um, in the second and fourth lines. And this is how we can look at the verses um, and how the music writer writes the music to emphasise certain points um, in the music. Now, when we get to the chorus, we can see that musically it looks very different from this, right? We can see here everything's very similar. We're adding things um, together in unison. When we look at the chorus, we see that it looks very different to the verse, right? And the first thing we can see is that the rhythm is different from the harmony. So we have the, mel oh, sorry, the, the melody and harmony have a different rhythm, sorry. So we can see that the melody being the top line, that is all singing at a different time than the harmony, at least for these first couple of lines and at this last line as well. And the reason for that is because you have the melody which is emphasising the first line, it's almost a call and response, where you have the melody singing the first part and then the harmony uh, as the backup, echoing back that idea, again, used to emphasise the, the verses that are being taught. Now, again, we're going to talk a little bit more, add one level to maybe our music theory, and if you don't understand this, this is absolutely okay. Essentially, just know that the writer does something very unique and very interesting here. But for those that are maybe a little bit more interested in music theory, we can see that he actually changes key. So he starts off in the first key here, which is what has been used throughout the first part of the music. And by adding these funny things, these sharps, these naturals, he actually modulates from the C key into the fifth key, which is the dominant. Again, if you're listening earlier on, the dominant being adding focus, right? Chord number five. And what is used here is you can actually see that what that means is that he actually changes key midway through this part here. And the reason for that is we're adding a focal point onto the word eternity, right? So, and to so his grace reaches me, yes, his grace reaches me, and to last through eternity. And that's where we can see the chords actually change. So he actually changes to a different key, so that's why we don't follow, we can't just follow the same um, numbering system because now we're talking in a different key. But what we can see is that he's adding all of these little flares to the music, these, acts, these all, all little different bits that he's adding into these chords to, again, add more focus. So we can see in the verse we've talked about we're a very rigid structure, and then now we're building towards this focal point here um, in, in the chorus. 
And then we then have a, in the third line, a one-off chord here. So, we, so after this modulation, he then resolves back to the dominant. He resolves back to the same as here. And then he ends off this line with a one-off chord, again, to emphasize this word sol. Um, and we can see this little symbol here means just a hold, where we're going to hold that chord here before resolving back to the normal end. And again, ends with that five to one dominant to tonic or donic, um, dominant to bass chord here. So we can see here that really, when we look at the music, the way that the writer structures this, again, in a nutshell, is the verses are used to gradually build suspense, to gradually build the story, to ultimately get to this final point with the focal points of the pieces of this piece of music being the words eternity, soul, and ending with the dominant reaches me. And so when we look at the lyrics, let's keep that in mind, that we are building up a story to get to this final point. So now let's look at the lyrics, right? So the first thing is, is that this hymn is called His Grace Reaches Me. And let's first understand what is grace, right? So grace in the Greek is this word charis. Um, and it comes from a root word meaning to rejoice or be glad or to thrive. And again, these two things tell us um, something in and of itself, right? Now, we understand, I think for the most part, we understand what grace is, right? We talk about the idea of grace being unmerited favour. We'll always hear that term. But when we actually look at the root word that is used here, it's more than just receiving something that we didn't earn or didn't um, work for. But we can see that the actual meaning is about being joyful, being um, thankful, being glad for that, um, for what we have received. So it's not simply just receiving something because we didn't earn it, but being thankful for that as well. And these were two um, quotes that I've taken from various commentators about this word. And it's the first one is that it contains the idea of kindness which bestows upon what he has not deserved. So this is, I guess, that more traditional understanding when we talk about grace being unmerited favour, understanding what this means. But I really liked this uh, quote, which is, the kindness by which God bestows favour even upon the ill-deserving and grants to sinners the pardon of their offences and bids them accept of salva eternal salvation through Christ. That when we use grace, we're not simply just talking about um, this unmerited favour, but it's this idea that God has given us something which we did not deserve, that God has given to us um, kindness, um, mercy to those that are, as it says here, ill-deserving, and that he grants, because of that, sinners can have pardon and ultimately eternal salvation through Christ. I think this is a very nice definition of when we talk about grace, this is what we are talking about here, that God has given us Christ so that we might have forgiveness of sins, not because we deserve it, but because of his kindness and mercy towards us. So let's look at the lyrics here, and I think it's interesting that each stanza of this um, him focuses on, I guess, a few different aspects that we can focus on with the idea of grace. And the first stanza goes like this, deeper than the ocean and wider than the sea is the grace of the saviour for sinners like me. Sent from the father and it thrills my soul just to feel and to know that his blood makes me whole. Um, and so the first thing we can see that we, and the first thing that we need to understand to put into perspective is the limitless nature of God's love. So we've got a few verses that are coming up and none of these verses are on the screen, sorry. So you're going to have to use your Bibles or phones and flip to them. But the first one we're going to look at is Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21 reads, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. To him be the glory in the church 
um, and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So it says here, who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. And again, this I feel like is a nice summary of the power of God and also God's love for us, that it is so beyond what we can even imagine, right? It's beyond all that we ask, right? So I guess asking means that we have to have some finite idea of what we're asking for, right? When we ask for something, we, I guess, have a rough understanding of what that thing is that we're asking for. But it goes beyond that. That When Paul writes this, it, goes, it says that um, God is able to do more beyond all that we ask, but also think, right? We can't even think, comprehend, imagine what God's power is. Um, but that is the nature of um, his power and his love for us, right? And we can see that, um, you know, the psalmists... Um, talk about God's unfathomable power, right? If we turn to Psalm chapter 147. Psalm chapter 147, verses 4 and 5, it reads, He counts the number of the stars. He gives names to all of them. Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. The idea that when we, you know, look up at the stars from our, wherever we are on earth, and we look up, right, that God is so far beyond that, that it is not just us, you know, we think that, you know, we are, you know, we get caught up in our own worlds, we get caught up in our own lives and focusing on, on um, the struggles that we each face. But when you think about this, we are this tiny human in this universe that God has placed, that when we zoom out of that, you know, when you, when you use Google Maps and you zoom out to see a bigger picture, you zoom out from your house, you zoom out from Perth, you zoom out from Australia, that this world that God has created... Um, that he is beyond that. He is beyond the stars that are in the universe and ultimately that he is able to count how many there are and it says gives names to all of them. That is how great God's power is, right? So when we talk about that, it is, that grace is deeper than the ocean and wider than the sea, it is these things that are so vast, so immense, that show and emphasise God's power and God's love for us. But we can also see that the second part of this line is that is the grace of the Saviour for sinners like me, sent from the Father, and it thrills my soul just to feel and to know that his blood makes me whole. The emphasis of this line is that God has given us Christ, that Christ was sent into the world for us, for you and for me. If we turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 reads, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. That Paul, in writing this letter um, to Timothy, is saying that Christ came into the world to save sinners and that he himself is saying that foremost of all, that he is the foremost sinner. And when we talk about, you know, the, the things that Paul did and, you know, the works that he did um, for the early church, we think about how wonderful those things were for the um, spread of the church at that time. That if Paul himself is saying that he is foremost of all sinners, then who are we looking at ourselves and what we have done that Christ came into the world to save each and every one of us as well. And we know in John 3.16, right, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. 
Um, and so that God sent Christ for us, right? Because of God's love, that is why he did that for us. And that ultimately redemption is only through Christ, that it is only through Christ that we can have this redeeming quality of his blood, um, making us whole, making us complete, making us perfect from our sins. That is ultimately through Christ only. And that is in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 which reads, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. That it is only through Christ that it says at the start of this verse that we have redemption through his blood and that it is according to the riches of his grace. Again, kind of nicely summarising what we are focusing on this morning. Um, But that's our first stanza, right? Let's look at the second stanza, which is higher than the mountains and brighter than the sun. It was offered at Calvary for everyone. Greatest of treasures and it's mine today. Though my sins were as scarlet, he has washed them away. And the the second um, point, the second stanza here, the focus is on what Christ had to do for us, right? That he offered himself at Calvary, that he died and was crucified for us, right? If we turn to Luke chapter 23, Luke chapter 23, um, verse 33, which is when they came to the place called the skull, where they, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left, right? And it always, I always am amazed when I look at um, the way that the biblical writers write verses like this, right? And this really, I mean, um, we were talking in our New Converts class about how we can know that the Bible is from God. But this is maybe a small thing that I always um, notice or look at, which is the way that the writers talk about such horrific events, right? All these gospel accounts have focused on how amazing Christ is, all these amazing miracles that he performed, how he you know, came from God, um, lived a life, suffered, did all these miraculous things and died, right? How we know that, um, that, or how I always think that this is not just a book written by men that were simply men, that were not inspired by God, is the way that they so matter-of-factly just write it, right? Then it says, when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him. There's no elaborate detail. There is no talking about... Um, you know, the, how you know, immensely cruel or immensely painful these things was, it is so matter-of-fact, right, that it was needed to have happened for us to have the forgiveness of sins, right? And I always think that if it was maybe just, you know, a man writing this, then I'm sure this, this uh, would have had a lot more um, detailed or, I guess, um, yeah, more um, metaphorical, I guess, language with regards to what this meant. But it is so matter-of-fact that the way that it is written here that he simply... They simply crucified him, right? That is exactly just what happened, right? And it, the reason for all this is because I think is that, well, he didn't do this for himself, right? It needed to have happened for all of us, right? Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9 reads, But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honour, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. That it wasn't for Christ's own um, salvation, it wasn't for himself that he died, but it is for, because of the grace of God, because God had immense kindness and mercy and love for us, that is why he made Jesus suffer and die on that cross, right? And when we talk about this idea of um, Christ dying at Calvary for everyone, the focal point, and we can see that the way that the writer writes this um, stanza is because 
and the reason for that is that we can is because our sins can be washed away, right? Because they were as scarlet, they can be washed away. And that comes from Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, which reads, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. And this same um, idea is mirrored in Psalm chapter 51. Psalm chapter 51, verse 7, which reads, Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. The idea that when you think about how pure white, right, when you think about, maybe it's hard for us to understand in, in Perth, but when you think about, and you see those movies, right, of a white Christmas when everything is just covered in pure, glistening white, that that being red, that being stained with something um, that is our sin, right? That red contrasted to the white. That ultimately that um, difference is there, that that red can simply just be removed, that can be washed away because of Christ, right? And again, the imagery that is being used here, when we talk about um, our sins being as scarlet and that they will be white like snow, right? When you think about snow, if you spill something into it, it's not just, you can't just simply just wash it away. You can't just simply get rid of the colour that's there to return back to the white, right? But that is, why, that is what Christ is able to do. do. He is able to do more than what we can even fathom, even think about these things that are not even possible for us as humans, Christ is able to do because of his sacrifice. And that means that we can have the reward of salvation because of that. In Isaiah chapter 33, uh, verse 7, oh, sorry, verse 6, Isaiah chapter 33, verse 6, um, which reads, and he will be the stability of your times, a wealth of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. That Christ and that God will be the wealth, the treasure, in other translations used, of salvation that we can have, that it is a reward that we can earn um, and that we need to be, um, we need to understand how precious this gift that God has given to us um, and that ultimately we can have this salvation, this treasure from God. Now, that ends the two stanzas that we look at in our hymn book. But actually, a third stanza was written um, much uh, long after um, the original hymn was written. And these are the words. I don't actually have any credits of who wrote this last stanza. Um, it is believed to have written, been written um, a few years after um, Gleason um, died. But the words go like this. Grander than the heavens and greater than the earth is God's grace for the sinner to give us new birth. And when this life ends, we shall rise above there to sit at his throne and to bask in his love. Um, and we can see that um, that this last stanza kind of rounds out the purpose of God's grace, right? Although not in the original hymn that was written, um, it really tells us the purpose of why God needed to send Christ for us, right? And it is because of our sins being washed away that we can be forgiven from our previous life, that have new birth from the life um, that we previously used to live. In Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verse 7... Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 reads, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. We read this earlier, um, but the idea is that it is the forgiveness of our sins um, that gives us a new life, the redeeming qualities of Christ's blood. And it is because of this that we can have hope, that not only do we receive God's love, but what this means for us is that we will rise above to be with God, right? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 
verses uh, 16 to 17. Which reads, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. And if again you think about this image um, that Paul is writing here for this church, um, is that we will be with God, that those that choose not to be with God will receive their punishment but those that are alive it says in verse 17 and remain right those that are steadfast it says will be caught up and meet the lord in the air that we will rise above this lit this literal physical rising up to be with god and ultimately this means that we will receive the victory that comes with that that we will be sitting with god on his throne in revelation chapter 3 verse 21 Revelation 3.21 reads, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. That if we receive the victory associated with Christ, that we can sit with God on his throne as well. So let's look at some applications for this, right? Um, and, oh, I guess, sorry, the other thing that I wanted to mention as well in this um, in this last stanza, is that this kind of, I guess, gives us a summary of um, what the chorus talks about, right? Which is simply, which we looked at earlier on, which is that will last through eternity, um, and that ultimately the focal point is that his, as the title suggests, is that his grace reaches me, right? That it, if we receive, choose to receive God's grace, that we will have eternity with God, right? So let's look at some applications, right? And the first thing that we've talked about extensively is that God has already offered us Christ through grace, right? And this has happened, you know, thousands of years ago, right? This isn't something new. This is something that has happened in the past. However, so God has done his part, right? But in order for us to receive God's grace, we need to be obedient to his word. So God has done his part, but we need to be obedient in response to um, what God has done. In Romans chapter 6, verse 17. Romans chapter 6, verse 17, which reads, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Which goes and emphasises here that grace isn't something like maybe the religious world talks about where you maybe you, you don't need to do anything, right? You simply just receive God's grace and that's it. That's all you need to do, right? We can see here that Paul talks about this idea of obedience from the heart and also that it is obedience to the form of teaching to which you were committed and the again the idea that this is already even in Paul's time already been taught the idea that um, the gospel message had already been taught so when we are talking you know when you look at religious um, uh, other religious groups um, and you know these other you know books that they use these other writings that they focus about this Paul is saying that all of this has already been taught to the church in the first century, right? So we need to look back into what were these Christians taught at that time? What is, what is this obedience that we need to follow, right? And it is ultimately through baptism that we can have the forgiveness of sins, which is what Paul talks about earlier on in, chap in this chapter. In uh, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, it reads, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. 
How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So again, the first two verses being that grace and sin should not be together, that because we have received God's grace, we should not be focusing and living a life of sin. And the reason for that is in verse 3. It says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptised into Christ Jesus have been baptised into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. The idea that baptism buries us with Christ and that we are raised from the dead, just as Christ did it as well, and that this is the um, this is how we can receive God's grace is through baptism. We can see that these first two verses talk about grace and sin, and the reason why is because grace um, can only be received through the baptism. Um, for forgiveness of our sins. But it is also to remember and also for us to focus on and emphasize that grace isn't the final endpoint. When we have received God's grace through baptism, it doesn't just end there for us. But we need to be continually growing in grace, right? And Paul likes to start and end his less, uh, letters to um, the churches or to particular people by talking about grace. Um, and we can see in 2 Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, the last verse of this letter is, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. The idea that grace doesn't just end at baptism, that we need to be growing in grace. And remembering, we talked all the way at the start of this lesson about what grace is, right? That we have received God's love, that the idea of this isn't simply we receive it and that's it. We need to do more with that. We need to grow in that as well. And one way this can be done is through studying God's word, right? Acts chapter 20, verse 32. Acts chapter 20, verse 32 reads, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. The idea that God's word helps, it says here, to build us up through grace. That it is the word of grace. And ultimately, the gospel, the, the, the reason why we study um, the Bible and the ultimate focal point of the Bible is the good news, right? The gospel call that God sent Christ to die for us and that we can have salvation. And in order for us to grow in that, we need to be studying that more as well. And we also need to remember, though, that grace also motivates us to do certain things, that grace isn't something we just receive, right? Um, one thing that I emphasise, um, again, in my New Converts class is that just because you are a new Christian simply doesn't, it simply doesn't end there, right? The idea that we, when we become Christians, it is not just a relationship that I have with God. It's not me and God and you and God and you, everyone does their own thing and everyone has their own relationship with God. Yes, all of that is true. But also, if that were simply the case, there wouldn't be a need for us to gather together as a church, right? The reasons, or one of the reasons why we gather together is to do good works and to build up one another, right? In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8, Second Corinthians chapter nine, verse eight reads, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. And you see the way that Paul writes this, that it says that God makes all grace abound to you because so that, right? The reason for all of that is so that we might have a all sufficiency in everything. But the second part is that we may have an abundance for every good thing. It's to do good works, but it, but this also leads into serving one another as well. In First Peter chapter four, 
verses 8 to 10, which reads, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint, as each one has received a special gift. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. That God's grace should mean that we are stewards of this, that we have been given a gift, and that it says in verse 9 that we have to be hospitable as one example. But this grace that we have given to us should mean that we serve one another as well. That that should motivate us to helping, doing good for one another, looking out for our brethren, serving one another, right? So as we come to a conclusion this morning, we can have so many blessings through God because of his grace and that ultimately salvation, the washing away of our sins, eternal life can only be through Christ, right? But God has done his part. God has done his part um, with sending Christ to die for us and it is our own personal responsibility to receive salvation right it is not up to me to be responsible for you it is each person needs to be accountable for their own salvation so let's think about this as we read this final um, verse for this morning which is our scripture reading for the grace of god has appeared bringing salvation to all men right so this is this is what we focused on the grace of god has appeared already right already appeared and the reason for this is to bring salvation to all men and how that works is by instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously and godly in the present age. That grace is the motivating factor for us to live a life worthy of service to God. And the reason why we do this is we are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession zealous for good deeds. That God has given us Christ to be our Saviour and that should be the motivating factor for us because that is what is going to purify us um, from our past selves and to redeem us to be someone, it says a possession, someone that God wants to have, that we should be therefore zealous for good deeds as well. So as we round off our lesson for this morning, I want everyone to have a personal examination. The purpose of um, this is to look at ourselves and to ask that question, right? God has done his part for us. We can be saved through God if we choose to do our part, right? So are we a Christian this morning? Have we chosen to follow and be obedient to God's words that we can have this gift of salvation? Or for those that are maybe struggling and um, have struggling in their faith and struggling to have this relationship with God, you know, we as a church want to be helping you, want to help pray for you and want to help serve you as well. We can only do this if um, we um, know about the struggles that you face. So, you know, let us, as we stand and sing our final hymn, let us dwell on these things um, moving forward. Let us stand. Deeper than the ocean.